0: So it's October twenty-eight, two 2016, in Malaysia. So this is just a... You don't have to sit that far away. <laughs> I'm not armed or anything. You know. This was just supposed to be an open session, is what I was told, so just whatever anybody would like to talk about. Well, if you don't have anything to talk about, I'll go back to Santa. <laughs> but why don't you come closer? Yeah, there we go. This way. Otherwise, when I look at everybody, I have to do this. I mean, I get a lot of exercising.
1: Maybe you could share with us your, your experiences about, um, about Krishna Consciousness and what inspired you to do exactly what you do. Are you serious? <laughs> well a, a three hundred page book, <laughs> why don't you make it
0: a little bit narrower topic? Uh, well, my uh, like experiences in Krishna consciousness, you know, it's forty three years for How many experiences do you want? Well, what inspires me, what I'm doing, you know, like every purport that inspires inspires me, every devotee that inspires. It's too big.
2: So just, uh, just um, in, in any way that you can inspire. me
0: he inspired hey come on ask me something specific if you don't have any questions well would you just have a cure time well let's first see if somebody has questions yes
1: um, so because I had, uh, probably said you had a PhD in education correct so I'm sure you heard about the whole fees must fall for Africa and I've been hearing that. Yeah, and how the students are obviously fighting for free education or whatever. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about, about what you've heard and in terms of how do we then uh, educate those that uh, want to be inspired by Krishna consciousness, maybe from as young as little or from as those that don't know much about it? Well, one is a social
0: issue and one is a spiritual issue. So, uh, you know, Srila Prabhupada's main concern was giving us spiritual life. So having a socially sane society is a secondary concern, but it's still a real concern. Just like here we also take care of the building. We make sure there's water, we make sure that there's air, we make sure there's something to eat. So in a society in general, if you want people in the society in general to be Krishna conscious, then the government, the Ksatryas, need to provide the basic necessities of life for people. So Srila Prabhupada explains that in a a Vedic society, education was always free. People didn't have to pay for education. But how was it free? The people who were educating have to live. So there were basically two ways that education was paid for. One was that the students would go in the village and beg. And so that was kind of an informal tax. It was kind of an informal, local tax, that the students would go in their village and they would regularly beg to support their teacher and their school. The other was that the government would give money to the Brahmanas. So that was more like a na- from the national taxes, the government was giving money to the Brahmanas. So the Brahmanas got uh, money to run their schools in both of those ways. Now their schools were a lot simpler. Prabhupada said Iran might just sit down in a corridor or under a tree and teach a class. So you didn't have to have today the very, very, very expensive arrangements to run a school. You didn't have to have buildings that were certain fire codes and certain equipment and, and that kind of thing. Handicapped access bathrooms and all these things that cost a lot of money to build and a lot of money to maintain. So the amount of money that they'd have to get in taxes from the government would have been less. And also the brahmanas themselves, the idea was that teachers were brahmanas who were satisfied living simply. So they weren't interested in getting some high salary. They were teaching for the love of teaching. But another thing to keep in mind is that before the Industrial Revolution, most people didn't go to school until they were 20 or 25 years old. That is a very, very recent thing in human history. So it used to be that the majority of people learned their trade from their parents the vast majority of people learned their trade from their parents and if they weren't inclined to learn their parents' trade then they would probably learn from some other relative maybe an uncle or a friend of the family for example um, and on American history Benjamin Franklin's father was a candle maker but he didn't want to make candles so he learned from a brother-in-law about how to be a journalist so you learn your trade like that and the majority of people were not terribly literate First of all, until the printing press, what were you going to be literate for, you understand? Yeah. The books were not widely available, they were copied by hand, um, you, know, you didn't have a printed book. So if the average person was literate, what would they read, you understand? There was nothing to read. So the average person was not literate, they didn't need to be literate. and. There was just a limited number of books that were really just for the educated persons. But even, you know, the business persons, they got a basic education, probably basic literacy, basic mathematics knowledge. Then those who were going to run the government, they had more education, probably what we, up to maybe age 14, 15, 16. Like Lord Ramachandra finished his education when he was 15, got married at 16. And then the Brahmanas might have more of an education. But Lord Chaitanya was married at 14, started running his own school at 14. That was only 500 years ago. in a minical family. So people didn't generally get a, a long, long time in education. They didn't have a concept of adolescence at all. You were a child and then you were an adult. People married young, they had their career young, and, and education was very, very practical. If you read about what Krishna learned in Gurukula, It always amuses me when someone says, we have a gurukula, because I say, well, do you teach flower airplane making? So in Krishna's gurukula, they learned civil engineering, they learned metallurgy, they learned how to make flower airplanes, they learned how to speak multiple languages, including languages of animals. They learned hypnosis, and all kinds of really amazing things. If, If we had a school that taught all of those things, we would have a long line of people waiting to get into school. But the point was that education was very practical. So, with the start of the Industrial Revolution, uh, everything changed dramatically. So, it used to be that children were engaged in helping with the family income from a young age. The vast majority of, of human beings had very minimum schooling because they didn't need it. What did they need for, for what? And they were engaged in the family occupation. I mean, I remember there was an exhibit in America, in Michigan, of rug making and they not only brought adults they brought children and the eight, year olds could make roads. But with the industrial revolution all of a sudden the means of income became industrialized and then they became very unhealthy yes uh, the first career to be industrialized was textiles which is what pulled women out of the home women used to work in their home they used to work women didn't just cook and clean, and and take care of babies. They used to work, but they would work from their home. Industrialization pulled the women out of their home for work, and it pulled the children out of the home to work. And all of a sudden, you had children in factories 12 hours a day, and there were no safeguards at all, like we still see in India, for example, still like that. But there were no safeguards, and the children were getting their fingers cut off, literally, and, and things like that. And they were never getting to see the sun. So, the government started instituting compulsory education for children, not because the children needed the education, but to get them out of the factories. Then what happened, as the sources of income became more and more industrialized, all of a sudden, people needed a lot more education just to have a basic job. Also, with the printing press, people needed to be literate in order to read. So, those two things pushed education for everyone. But I mean, even in America, it's only very recently that the government has had laws that mandate educating everyone. So it used to be if somebody was handicapped or whatever, the government didn't have a responsibility to educate. Now they do. And in America, sometimes it's costing $120,000 just to educate one severely handicapped child, who maybe will be educated to read and write their own name. Maybe. So this is a very, very new thing. In human society. And the requirements for education for even a basic career are being pushed up and up and up and up and up. I mean, it used to be if you were, you know, say you didn't have anything. And when I was a kid, you could drop out of secondary school and get a good job. Then it became you had to get a secondary diploma. Now you practically have to get an undergraduate degree. Now, among more educated people, they say, hey, you know, I'm not going to let my kid get married until they have a master's degree. So it's pushing the, it, in my career. So it's pushing the requirements higher and higher and higher and higher. And then, because there's all these specialized careers, there's all this specialized equipment needed for it. And so the cost is just astronomical. The cost of having you know all these fancy buildings and these well-trained teachers. And I don't know what it's like in this country, but in America, one textbook is costing fifty to hundred dollars one textbook that you use for one semester for one class. So how are we going to provide free education for everybody now? It's almost impossible. How would we be able to tax the citizenry enough to supply everybody with up to an undergraduate degree for free? You know, you you couldn't do it. The actual literal cost of somebody getting an undergraduate degree is probably somewhere about seventy to to $100,000, what it actually costs. You follow? You know, even if you're not paying that much, that means it's subsidized by somebody. It's subsidized by the government. It's subsidized by rich donors and so forth. So how are we going to return to free education? We don't even do free education in the Hare Krishna movement. We do for our daily Bible time classes and stuff, if you take a systematic course in this come we charge for it. Why? You have to. You know, when my husband and I ran a guru cool kula. You have to have a building that's up to the codes. And that, that costs money. And, and if we just said, well, we're not going to charge anything, you just give a gift, people would give me a sari. You understand? They'd send their kid to school for a month and give me a sari or a bag of rice. But that, I couldn't go to the bank and say, hey, you know, we've got to pay our $1,000 a month mortgage, here's a bag of rice. And, and so if you didn't charge money, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't keep it going, even if the teachers were willing to work without salary and sleep on the floor and so forth and so on. So it's a very complicated situation. People are right. They're right. Education should be free. But how do you do it? And, and we have this, this problem in general That industrialization has created such a society that many of the things which should be there for human beings are not there anymore. And this is my understanding of why Shri and Prabhupada so much pushed developing farm communities and why Prabhupada linked farm communities to Varnasha. I mean, in Vedic times they had cities and they did Varnashram also in the cities. But for us to try to institute a sane society, with industrialization is extremely difficult. There's just so many hurdles. So for people to ask for free education in highly industrialized societies with very complicated educational systems that are extremely costly is probably not going to work. Unless you have a a, a wealthy country with very high taxes. Otherwise it's, it's not very... Like Germany. Where, where the universities are free. Germany is one of the wealthiest countries. Why is Germany a very wealthy country? Anybody know why Germany is such a wealthy country? It's one of the great historical ironies. What do they not spend money on? By law, they're not allowed to spend money on. They were forced or the other countries of the world. You are not allowed to spend money on this. What do other countries of the world want to prevent Germany from having a what? Come on, Germany caused two world wars. What did the countries of the world not want Germany to have? Huh? I mean, you a military. So Germany and Japan were restricted by the other countries of the world. You can only spend the minimal amount on a military just for basic defense. Well, then they had a whole lot of money to develop their economy. And so after World War II, Germany and Japan became two of the most economically successful countries in the world. That was their reward for having started the wars, the law of unintended consequences. So Germany is a very wealthy country, and from the taxes they can provide for university education. How are you going to do that otherwise? We can't do it in America. How are you going to do that here? So you what's know, the solution? The, the solution is very complicated. Have a society where you don't need that much education in order to have a happy, productive life. You can't convince our members of the Hare Krishna movement to do that. How are you going to convince people in general? Would we be able to convince our members, you know, just live without your electronics and just grow your own food and have a cow? And having kids only get, you know, up to a fourth grade education? Who would agree to that? In fact, I would say, if I can be so bold, that the people in the Hare Krishna movement from Indian backgrounds are probably the least likely to agree to that. Am I correct? And then, you have, for that reason, you have the Indian history and the subjugation by the British, and Does that answer your first question? You <coughs> prefaced it with, you have a PhD in education, so I thought I would answer you yeah. in that mode. <laughs> I hope t- I didn't totally bore everybody. <laughs> now, what was your second question?
1: I said so that, obviously, like um, educating people when they have a general background about Krishna consciousness, uh, I mean, how do we go about it in a humble and inspiring way?
0: So that's an entirely different question. No, but it's... With very little relationship to first. <laughs> how do we educate people about Krishna consciousness in a humble and inspiring way? That's your question. Which people?
1: People on the streets. Uh...
0: People on the streets. Well, generally, you know the answer to that. Right? Our humble and inspiring way to educate people on the streets with Krishna consciousness is Harinam book distribution and prasadam festivals. That's the answer. Okay. It's right, so our humble and inspiring way to educate people on the street about Krishna consciousness. Prasada, Harinam, books, and festivals. Now, once we get them off the streets, that's another While they're still on the streets, that's. It. You don't have to have such an academic question.
2: Yes? basic care for animals and those type of things. So I just wanted to really have your view
0: on that, doing that kind of work. So I also do service with the temple, But what is your view on doing those type of um, welfare work for uplifting like the you know, community in terms or how they treat animals? Mm. Are you asking in terms of an individual or in terms of the ISKCON society? So, ISKCON society itself is meant to be a, primi- a primarily a place for worship and education. I don't understand at all, that you will probably meant ISKCON to run the whole world like a government. I don't I don't think he intended ISKCON to be the world government. So, our business in ISKCON is to educate people and to have a place for communal worship and, and training. And we are meant to educate people to go out into the world and do everything that needs to be done in the world from a Krishna conscious perspective. Krishna wants there to be government leaders who are devotees. Krishna wants there to be business leaders who are devotees, doctors who are devotees, everything who are devotees. So one of the things that needs to be done is taking care of animals. So that's just one of the many, 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 many things that need to be done. If we had devotees in government, then the government's business is welfare work. That is the business of the government. The government is supposed to make sure you have roads, that you have a good police force, that you have water, that you have electricity, that you have food, that the old people are taking care of, the sick people are taking care of, yes, everything. They're supposed to take care of the material needs of the citizens and also bring them to spiritual life through the Brahmanas. So we would like to have a Krishna conscious government. We'd like to have a Krishna conscious everything. Just imagine, you know, if devotees were running the malls and the stores and devotees were running all the restaurants and devotees were running all the medical clinics and you know everything if that. Was, at least the leaders of that were devotees. Devotees would then be doing everything. We would like devotees to be doing everything. We're we're not propounding a society where we're simply cloistered and separate from the world. We just make like our own little intentional ghetto that we stay in and we just protect ourselves from Maya and we let the rest of the world go to hell and we just sit around and chant Krishna and we the Bhagavatam. And maybe we grow little food so that we, you know, we have something to eat. Now, it's okay if some devotees do that. That's all right. But that's not our general movement for the world. But it's not that ISKCON, the organization, should be providing water for people in the world. We have to provide water for people to come to the temple. It's not our business to provide water for everybody in the nation. That's not the business of ISKCON. We don't go to the temple president and say, my dear temple president, you know, you've know, got to make sure the roads in Linajja are good. You understand? So it's not the business of the official ISKCON society to be taking care of all the old people in Linajja and all the sick animals in Linajja and all the roads in Linajja. So as an institution, that's not our business. But for individuals, we want devotees to be doing everything in the world for Krishna. And ISKCON is meant to train people How you can do everything for Krishna in the world. And that would certainly include taking care of animals. Now, if you think that taking care of animals or taking care of old people or taking care of sick people or building roads is in and of itself bhakti, that's a problem. Does that make sense? I mean, even for ourselves brushing our teeth is not in and of itself bhakti. You're not going to become a spiritually enlightened person by brushing your teeth. Correct? But if I see this body belongs to Krishna, and I'm taking care of Krishna's property, then I can actually become an enlightened person by brushing my teeth. Does this make sense to everybody? Like fighting fighting a war, that isn't a spiritual activity. But if you're fighting it for Krishna, and Krishna's there on the battlefields, they fight the war for me, it becomes a spiritual activity. So the intrinsic spiritual activities are chanting Hare Krishna. The nine processes of devotional service. Those are intrinsically spiritual. Of course, one can also do them materially. Like Prabhupada says, you can have a professional Bhagavatam or It then becomes a non-spiritual activity. Do you understand? He says, don't keep a shawl around Shiva for cracking nuts. Or people just show the deity to collect money for their family. Then that activity no longer acts spiritually. So you can take an intrinsically spiritual activity and do it in a way that's material. And you can also take an intrinsically material activity and do it in a way that's spiritual. So if you're, you're doing Krishna conscious sadhana, and if your consciousness is that you're doing your work in the world for Krishna, whether it's volunteer work or paid work is irrelevant. Then that work becomes as good as bhakti for you. The work itself isn't bhakti. Does this make sense <coughs> Like we have in Chapati, we have our bhakti went out to hospital. A hospital a running a hospital, being a doctor, that's not bhakti. It's not one of the sixty four hundreds of bhakti. But if you're a devotee of Krishna and you're serving the patients as your service, then that's as good as bhakti. Just like Arjuna's fighting was as good. As. But don't ever think that something like that is bhakti in and of itself. Then, then you, you're going to water down the process and make it into something karmic, and they become yoga. Which is what happens with so many religions that they, they change their religion to just being, you know, do good for other living beings in the world on a material level. And that's it. They they stop there. It's just, okay, that, that's it. That's all. That's our spiritual. Does that answer your question? Thank you for asking that question. Can uh, I um, ask you another question that's sort of not really related but it's, it's sort of along the same lines. So there
2: was recently a recent here discussion around, um, you know, is spoke to we don't like to kill, like, other living entities like I hope. So, yeah. so um, like, even killing a mosquito, those type of things, you know, we shouldn't really be doing that. But at what point does that become... So the discussion was, like, say, for example, in a temple, you would get um, an organization to come and fumigate the place on a regular basis. And that in itself is killing whatever living entities are in, in the temple. So at what point do you... If, is it a... Well,
0: it's interesting because I don't think you're going to find anything in the Shastra that's going to give you some detailed You can kill a bug in this situation The the Shastra generally provides general principles So we know we can kill aggressors Although if you're very very spiritually realized, you may not kill an aggressor Like there was that leper Vasudev and his, his flesh was rotting and they were maggots in his flesh and if they would fall out, he would pick them up and put them back. And he said, oh, I don't want to deprive you of your meal. Uh, that shouldn't be imitated. But if you actually feel that way, you know, that, that's all right. It's not that that's not all right. That's all right. But true Prabhupada would say that if we're dirty and we're killing rats, then we should be killed. If you're sparkling clean, just think of it, if, if you're leaving out food for the rats and then you're killing them that's terrible it's like you're inviting some guests to your house and then you're killing them you understand so if, if, you, if you leave food for creatures to eat and then you poison them or you spray them, that's extremely simple because you're inviting them But if you're extremely clean, that means there's never any food left out overnight. All the food, both unoffered and offered, is in tightly sealed containers. You know, all the dishes are clean and then the floors and everything clean, rugs are clean with water. You know, really we should be probably said revolutionary clean. So if you're revolutionary clean, and if, then you've also done everything structurally that you can do. You've plugged all the holes. You if you've done all of that and then you still have some problem that's damaging the structure of the building or threatening the health of the devotees or threatening the purity of the food, then you could go ahead and kill the creatures. If it's just an inconvenience, you should tell. Does that make sense? If you're looking at something where devotees' health is going to be compromised, or the food purity is going to be compromised, or the building's going to be eaten by termites or something. And you've done your part to make sure that you've, you've put a, a barrier and you're not giving out food. But otherwise, if, if, we're, if we're not revolutionary clean and done everything that we can do structurally, then it's quite simple. Obviously, if the mosquitoes trying to eat you, you can kill them rest, the especially since they spread disease. Mosquitoes kill more people than any other creature, including other humans. Did you know that? Is that all right? Yes. Well, the main question to ask is, is there gender equality in biology? No. No. And the other question to ask is, is there artificial gender inequality that is not biological? If there's artificial gender inequality that is not biological, why is it there? And my answer would be that we respect the natural differences between the the sexes that are there, both by physiology and by psychology. And if we artificially impose some inequality that's not created by God, then we should ask ourselves why we're doing that. To respect God's system is something that everybody should do. Modern society, they try to circumvent God's natural system, primarily with contraception and abortion contraception and abortion primarily has the effect of trying to turn women into men in terms of their ability to work in the world and function in the world. If you removed all contraception and abortion in the world, the differences between the genders would be immediately very apparent. But to artificially impose some difference that's not there by biology, what we've done in the modern world is we've artificially... Eliminated the natural biological difference. Isn't that interesting? And then we then we end up imposing artificial differences. As far as the Hare Krishna movement, the Hare Krishna movement is not a monolithic movement. Uh, how men and women are treated varies by locality and tends to reflect the mood and the standards of the surrounding culture, in my experience. Sometimes you have a leader in a particular area who has particular views about gender relationships and imposes his or her views on that local community irrespective of the surrounding culture. So we do see that. We do see in certain temples that there are certain behaviors and rules that are neither coming from the shastra nor from Krishna's biology and psychology nor from the surrounding culture it's something in the mind of the leader that's being imposed on that and that could be in any direction anywhere on the spectrum but generally our norms tend to reflect the norms of the outside society we might like to say that they don't but they do that's what I see I could talk about that more if you want, but is that answer sufficient? It's fine. By the way, the whole situation with gender equality and inequality also has its roots in the Industrial Revolution. When society wasn't industrialized, it it was not really an issue. Because women all had careers, everybody had a career. Don't women have varna? Don't you consider the varna of the man and the woman for marriage? Yes? Yes? Do women have caste? Yes? No? You're all tired? Do women have caste or not? Yes or no? Yes? No? You don't know? You're tired? Do women have caste or not? This is a very simple question. What does caste mean? It means varna. What does varna mean? What does varna mean? What does Krishna say? Chaturvarnyam mayashristam What's the next words? Guna karma vivagasha. So if women have varna, that means they must have? Come on, folks. If women have varna, they must have? Chaturvarnyam mayashristam Guna karma So if women have varna, they must have guna and you're all really tired. Let's do it again. Chatur, Vranya, Mayashristam, guna, karma, viva If women have varna, they must have guna and karma. Thank you. What does that mean? Goon and karma means they must have the qualities of that work, and karma means they must work. Work. But before industrialization, people didn't go to a job. They didn't go to the office. They didn't go to a job. I mean, sometimes the fruit seller was going from one person's house to another to sell her fruit. So she was a businesswoman who left home to work. But usually people didn't leave home to work. You, you did your work at home as part of the family. There wasn't a conflict between home and career. There wasn't a conflict between serving your husband and working because you married a man of the same varna and part of serving your husband was helping him with his work. We went to a game reserve yesterday and one of the women who went with us, I said, do you work? She says, I help my husband with his business. That was the pre-industrial society. When we say women should just serve their husbands, we don't mean only that you go and massage his feet or you cook his meals. We didn't just mean that. Although you might do that also. You might have a servant to cook meals. But it meant that you assisted him in his occupation. So women didn't have to choose between home and career. The career was in the home. Women all had careers. Joe, had a career. The gopis had careers. They go to Mathura to sell their milk products. That's when Krishna stops them and demands a tax, yes? And then there was extended family. So you didn't have one woman who had to do all the cooking and all the cleaning and all the laundry, yes? Yes? It was extended family, all the shopping. And then came industrialization. Industrialization pulled... Occupation out of the home. And the first people to suffer for that were women and children. With children, we got compulsory education and put them in the schools. With women, they started being allowed to work only until they were married. And then they weren't allowed to work anymore because we didn't want to take them out of the home. And all of a sudden, women, for the first time in in known history, had to choose their family over their occupation. They couldn't have both anymore. Well, at least they were busy at home, because people had an average of six kids. And then you got, then the home became industrialized. Then you had a washing machine and a dishwashing machine, right? And a vacuum cleaner. Pretty soon there wasn't as much to do in the home anymore. And then with contraception, you didn't have kids anymore. All of a sudden, only having one or two kids. What people think three kids is a big family. Four kids, oh my God, four kids. And all of a sudden there was nothing to do at home anymore. So then the women started choosing career over home. In the beginning of the industrialization, they chose home over career. They had to. They didn't have a choice, they had to. Because they had lots of babies. And once they didn't have lots of babies and the home was, was industrialized and you could buy frozen food and canned food and you could buy restaurants. And that, those are all very new things in human society. Prepared food in the grocery store, I mean, it didn't, it didn't exist. Probably talked about when he was a child there weren't any such things. It wasn't there. You had to cook. And so now, now the women are choosing career over home which is just basically destroying the whole society. It means there's no family anymore. It means people aren't getting married until they're 25, 30, 35. Then they're having their one or two children when they're 38. And nobody's cooking. I went to a grocery store. I said, where are the spices? And she's looking at me. What? You know, spices. So she takes me to the mustard and the ketchup. So we don't cook. Because people don't cook, they're eating prepared food. Because they're eating prepared food, it's full of chemical preservatives and dyes, and it's making everybody sick. Uh, and, and, and people aren't getting married until they're 35, but it's not that they're celibate until So by, by women choosing career over home is destroyed everything it's just destroyed. But it's not fair to say to women don't have a career. Have the guna of a varna but not the karma of a varna. Then you're going to be what? If you have the qualities of a particular varna but you can't work according to that varna, how are you going to feel? How would you feel? Very frustrated. So Krishna hasn't designed half of the human race to be frustrated. So this is the dilemma. And this is again, if we're going to talk about varnashram, why well, it's very difficult to do an actual varnashram in an industrialized society. It's very difficult. And and all the talk about we have we have about gender equality, it's all predicated on this this very strange and artificial system that exists in modern society. If we didn't have that kind of life, the whole conversation would be quite different. If women had an average of six kids and there was an extended family and you could work from home and be satisfied with your career from home, it just wouldn't. Most of these questions and difficulties just wouldn't even run. I think many times in this kind of people look at what were the standards for men and women 200 years ago and try to take that and copy-paste it onto an industrialized society, which is completely ridiculous. It's absurd. Does that make sense to me? getting a lot of sociological questions anything yes
3: Yes. And sociologically, we tend to uh, imbibe or rather accept change in, in our way. And from an ISCON perspective, uh, there's steadfast, st- steadfast rules. How is that going to be implemented?
0: This is the age-old question. What are the principles that can't be changed, and what are the details that must be changed? One of the 14 items of knowledge is knowing time, place, and circumstance, and another is knowing how to apply things by time, place, and circumstance. And Prabhupada was asked once, how do you know what is a principle that can't be changed, and a detail that must be changed? And his answer was, that requires intelligence. If you want to look at the, you know, what we call conservative and liberal, generally the conservatives are people who think... Lots of things are principles that can't be changed, and the liberals think lots of things are details that must be changed. That's really the the problem. So if we see all of our behaviors, which of those are principles, which of them are details? The liberals identify most of them as details, and the conservatives identify most of them as principles. Now, Srila Prabhupada had, among his many aspects of genius, was knowing what was a principle and what was a detail. I'm having a conversation with one devotee uh, chanting Hare Krishna and relating it to deity worship. And he was saying that Srila Prabhupada did not teach all the complicated rituals and rules of deity worship that are practiced by most Vaishnavas in India, including other Bodhi Vaishnavas. And he said probably if he did, he couldn't have created a worldwide movement. It wouldn't have worked. And Prabhupada brought, well, these are the essential principles and he gradually introduced some details. But his emphasis was on the eternal principles. So, as soon as you change the principles, you're in a lot of trouble. And if you don't change the details, you're also in a lot of trouble. Because, for an organization to be alive, just like the main symptom that we're alive is that we're adapting. When it's hot, we perspire. When it's cold, we shiver. We're adapting to our environment. Whereas matter is not really adapting. You understand? Something that's alive is responding to its environment. So for an organization to be alive, and Bhakti is not said, I a spiritual organization must be alive, it's got to adapt to its environment. But also in order to be alive, you have to retain your identity. You have to do both things. You have to retain your identity and you have to adapt to your environment. The organization has to do the same thing. It has to retain its identity and has to adapt to its environment. I mean, we were just reading in a sentence the other day where Prabhupada was talking about that the, the methods of sacrifice are very different from one age to another on the planet. And he said they're even very different at this time from one religion to another. But he said that's not important. What's important is that you're sacrificing for God. Now, a sectarian person tends to think that the details of how their particular religious organization engages in sacrifice for God are the most important thing, and people will argue and even kill each other over these things. Yes? That's an interesting discussion. What are the principles? Now, I am not going to say that I, being the David Asi, I know what are the principles and what are the details. That would be absurd. These are things that we're supposed to work out as a society. It's one of the reasons we have a GBC. It's one of the reasons that we have the Shastra Advisory Council. It's one of the reasons that we should have Eastighis among the devotees. It's one of the reasons that we should thoroughly study Srila Prabhupada's books. It's one of the reasons that we should thoroughly apply Srila Prabhupada's books so that we have realized wisdom and not just some kind of real knowledge. And then, and then the, the devotees who are you know learned in the Shastras and who have some realized wisdom should be coming together regularly and discussing these things. Like just as some kind of a comparison, the, the Amish, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they basically issue almost all kinds of technology. But what they do is they have councils of elders in their community. And if there's something comes up, they discuss this, can we use this or not? Is this going to violate our principles? And they're not they're not issuing technology because they want to eschew technology. They don't want anything that's going to interfere with their principles of family and renunciation and simplicity. It's not that they're against technology or electricity per se. And the elders may say, well, you know, we're maintaining our communities by selling our milk and selling our cheese. And if we don't have electricity, we're not going to be in compliance with the government regulations. We won't be able to sell them, we won't be able to maintain our communities. So they make a decision that you can have electricity in your barn for the milk and the cheese, but you can't have it in your home. Do you understand what i So this is the way I see that we also need to deal with these questions. We need to have people who are elders, not necessarily that they're 80 years old, but they might be 20-year-old elders. So they've a 16-year-old elder. So you know, we, we have to have people who are wise and learned who can regularly review these kind of things for our communities and what I think we already see and we will continue to see is that different communities will make different decisions about these things so you're going to have some communities that are more conservative and some communities that are more liberal and we are going to have different applications also the answer to those questions may be different in different environments which details should be adjusted here in South Africa are going to be different than what details should be adjusted in Bali for example So in Bali, you have a large Hindu community whose definition of Hinduism is radically different from that of the Hinduism of India. It's quite different. It's really very different. But they consider themselves Hindus. So if they're going to come to Christian consciousness, what parts of their indigenous Hindu culture do they keep? And what parts do they iskhanize? This is a big question among the devotees in Bali. They have traditional Hindu dress that they wear when visiting a temple, but doesn't look like outdoors. It looks quite different. So if we have a devotional festival, some of the devotees come in dhotis and saris, and some come in their traditional Balinese Hindu dress. And this is a discussion. The same in Manipur, which of course, they are they are actually Godi Vaishnavas, they are followers of Narita and Dasna. Their dress is different. Their traditional Gaudiya Vaishnava dress is different. Their kirtans are different. To what extent should they become Iskhanized? I mean, the traditional Manipuri Gaudiya Vaishnavas, for example, talking about ladies, they have traveling lady kirtan parties. That's part of their Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. They play the conch shells as a musical instrument during the kirtan. In fact, they'll play two conch shells once. As an instrument, we don't do that. So when they join ISKCON, should they keep their local traditions, their wording, or should they follow ISKCON behavior? It's a discussion. Is there a benefit to their keeping their local culture? Would, would we see as ideal the destruction of all the world's local cultures? If we spread Christian consciousness all over the world, would we want to destroy all the local cultures? Well, what, what does that mean? If we don't want to destroy all the local cultures, what would that mean? How would they come under Lord Shantan's banner and still keep their own culture? Are these parts, of it? Which parts would they keep? Which parts wouldn't they keep? There's a lot of pressure right now that once you become a this kind devotee, you jettison almost everything. But yet, if you ask any devotee, do you want to destroy all the world's local cultures, they'll all say no. So what is it? how does that play out? I'm just putting out the questions. I'm not suggesting that I have an answer, but I do suggest that we ask these questions and that we discuss them and that we pray on them and that we not just sort of forge ahead blindly without knowing what we're doing,
3: If I may, I'd like to share something with you. I'm a class teacher, so I was teaching a sociology class. Mm. but what came to a point was that they believed in ancestors and mm-hmm. it was important for them to slaughter the cow <coughs> and, some, and some religions regard uh, the cow as sacred so we just came to that point and it never really got first
0: yeah but that's just, that's just post-modernism that's just yet to my touch upon so then you're saying there's no principles Or you're saying there that the only principle is that all principles are good. You're basically saying there it's absolutely true that there's nothing absolutely true. You follow? That's their relative truth. We have our relative truth. It's all just relative truths and there's absolutely no absolute truth. No, nobody can live like that. Either murder is good or it's bad. Human beings do not live and say, well this society thinks murder is okay so that's cool for them. I mean we're sort of doing that with abortion. But it's not a practical way to live. Well this culture says stealing is okay so stealing is okay for that culture. But we say there are universal norms. I mean, according to just empirical sociological studies, they've identified five universal norms that are held by every culture in the world. Purity, authority, fairness, community, and don't do any harm. So some of those are biologically based. There's going to be an emphasis on purity for health. Yes? Yes? There has to be an emphasis on respecting authority because we're all born into a family where we have authorities. If you don't respect your authorities, you can't even be taken care of. I don't see any biological basis for fairness. A community again—that it's very difficult for us to maintain ourselves alone. If we don't put some moral emphasis on loyalty to a community, it'd be very hard to survive. Don't do harm, because well, if I let other—if I'm allowed to do harm, other people can harm me. So killing of a cow is in the, is in the category of harm. And as a universal principle, don't harm. It. Now the question is, what constitutes harm? That can be discussed. What does it mean to do harm? I think a good working definition is to cause pain to another creature that's not absolutely necessary for your own life and substance. We can't avoid all pain to all creatures. That's not possible. Correct? That's impossible. Awesome. But not to do any harm that's not absolutely ne- necessary. So is killing the cow absolutely necessary? Definitely not. So just because a community has a tradition of doing something harmful doesn't mean that it's a good tradition. You could say, well, the Europeans had a tradition of colonizing the world and killing all the local people. Is that Okay. That was their tradition. Correct? Am I correct? They called it the white man's burden. Now these for hundreds of years, the Europeans, you know, went all over the globe, took over countries, enslaved or killed the local people. Yes? And if you ask them, why are you doing it? It's our tradition. That's what we do. Is that a good answer? Is that an acceptable answer? Is that an acceptable answer? No. So just because if your tradition is what you do, that's not an acceptable answer. Most communities and most societies have somehow other formed harmful traditions. You'd be hard put to find a community or society that hasn't formed some sort of harmful tradition. We should be willing to take a look at our at what at what our traditions are. At least periodically we should re-examine our traditions and find out if, if anything's crept in there, that really needs to be jettisoned. that is, it doesn't belong there. So it's not just somebody's opinion. Is the animal harmed? Yes. Is it necessary to harm the animal? No. Beginning, middle, end of story. If you want to go, why do we consider the cow sacred? That's a pretty simple thing. The cow gives us milk and therefore you don't want to kill an animal that gives you milk. But that's another level of discussion. Because somebody can say, well, God created the cow to give us milk and to be slaughtered etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's just really, 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 really simple. Is it harmful? Yes. Is it necessary or could it be avoided? Yes, it could be avoided. If you harm someone else and that that doesn't need to happen. It's not necessary. Otherwise you have a culture where anybody can harm anybody if they want to. Why stop at animals? Why not human beings? Don't we harm other human beings? Do we think that's good? People do it, but we don't think it's good. If someone says, well, that only applies to humans and not animals, but animals have feelings, they're well. It should apply to the plants too. You just don't go killing a bunch of plants for no reason either shouldn't even kill bugs for no reason. Why should you kill anything for no reason? Because it's my tradition. This is not a good enough We shouldn't be doing something because it's our tradition, are we? I made that argument to my mother when I was four years old. I said, we shouldn't be doing anything just because it's our tradition. We should do it because it's true. something just because it's our tradition we better stop and look at what we're doing why are we doing is it actually true is it actually right is it actually in the shastra where did it come from all kinds of things you know our dharma is going to infiltrate dharma all the time yes my heart in fact okay
3: and he's trying to explain to a 12-year-old.
0: I think you could explain it to a 4-year-old. makes it very difficult, especially why
3: there so many different cultures. And, and, and okay,
0: let me back up and try again. I, I I do know. no harm. Yeah. I don't care what the cultures are. I, whatever diverse culture there is, is any culture allowed, because it's their culture, to do harm? That is the question. A four-year-old can understand this. I understood this when I was four years old. Does a cultural tradition allow you to do unnecessary harm? Any child can understand. That's not a hard thing to do. Does the fact that it's a cultural tradition mean that you have the right to harm another living being? Is, is that a hard thing to understand? It's not hard. To, I don't mean to get into it. I don't think it's, don't it's hard, hard at all. No, it's not, but I mean to, to try to explain that to you. What would be the difficulty? I just don't it's get it. it. It's hard to, to try to explain that. What think. difficulty did you run into?
3: Um, for example, they would, they would come up and say, Look, if, if this is how our culture is, why I use them, why I use so what's your answer to that? Um, like I said earlier, we came to a point where I. So what could you answer them now
0: after the answer I just gave? You? What answer would you give them? They do know how uh, to, to. And what would you answer that they say this is our culture? I, I, I came to a point where I
3: think. I don't what could know. you answer now?
0: What about just saying every culture has harmful things that should be eliminated? Could you say that? Are there harmful things in Indian culture that should be eliminated? Is everything about Indian culture good? And so you can say that. You can say, look, there are harmful things in the culture I come from that we need to get rid of. I don't know of any culture that doesn't have something that needs to be cleaned out. So you can say, I'm not criticizing your culture. I'm saying that some bad element has entered into your culture that probably wasn't there originally. That happens in every culture. It's happened in my culture. It happens in your culture. We have to go through, we have to take out the parts of our culture that have become contaminated. You can put it like that. So you're not saying your culture is bad. You understand? Yes?
3: Let's just take in his situation, right? In mm-hmm. our diversity of our culture. He's a school teacher. Mm-hmm. and Looking at the kids that come from the background. Right? He's in a situation that sometimes the kid doesn't, doesn't have for a couple of days other not have a plate of food. And whatever he gets, he eats. So probably not a Non-vegetarian. Mm. So if someone gives it to him, he eats it to satisfy himself. And yes. how do you go back to that kid to of say, what you eat is not not
0: Yeah, but they're killing this cow at a marriage ceremony as a, as a tradition, not because they need to eat the cow. Fair enough.
3: But in terms of a kid doesn't have a meal for the day, but he gets and eats He makes it new.
0: Well, then you're coming back to the same problem we talked about with, with women and the same problem we talked about with education. If you don't have a society that's producing enough food, then you have a problem. And you can't go to a little child when you're not giving the child enough food and start talking to the child about what the child should eat. But if you're going to argue on the basis that cow killing is okay at a wedding because it's a cultural tradition, that's not a valid argument. If some child says, you know, I don't have enough to eat and the only thing my parents give me is meat, that's not something you can deal with with a young child. That's something you have to deal with on the level of the parents in the society. If it's actually someone who has nothing to eat, you follow? If you're literally talking about someone who doesn't have food and that's the only food they're given in their child and they have no way to get their own food, then you have to solve that on a society basis. You can't put the burden of that on a you know five-year-old child or a ten-year-old child. Does that make sense? But that's a different argument. It, 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 it's apples and oranges, not the same thing. And you can say to the child, that's wrong. That's wrong that the only food you're given to eat is meat. That's wrong, it should be fixed. You can't ask a little child to fix it, but you can say it needs to be fixed. You child says to you, you know, I, I don't have any clean water to drink. All the water that I drink has worms in it. That's wrong. You're not going to say that. That's okay. But it's not something the child can fix. Is that right? He was talking about something else. He was talking about not poverty and, and want. He and was talking about something people are doing voluntarily as because it's their tradition. So it's not, it's not the same I think as a teacher you can say every tradition has things in it that are harmful that need to be looked at and need to be fixed. All the activities of every tradition are not all good. Just because it's traditional doesn't mean that it's something that's good. And it was probably introduced into the traditions. Okay, we probably should stop here because we have quite a long drive to get back unless somebody has some... some I would say one more if anybody has another question but is that alright for what you yeah?
1: yes um, so sometimes when the, when we come to understand these principles it makes greater sense in us where we feel that we're more superior to others now that we have this absolute truth I do know we find so
0: many ways to feel superior to others
1: <laughs> we basically can feel
0: superior to others about everything and anything so we don't want to avoid doing the right thing because we might feel superior by doing right It's not, let me do the wrong thing so I won't feel proud. We should learn to do the right thing humbly. But, you know, we don't need to do the right thing to feel proud. We can be proud of doing the wrong thing, too. We can say, I'm so humble and wonderful because I do the wrong thing because I don't want to feel proud. And it's just ridiculous how, how our mind can, you know. It's really, really ridiculous. I'm better than everybody else because I'm I'm doing the wrong thing to keep myself humble. I'll do the right thing because it, it pleases Krishna, not because we're so great. I'll do the right thing as, as a servant. If if we as Hare Krishna devotees and as members of ISKCON, if we can't identify universal principles. Who's going to do it? That, that's our, our mission in the world. Yes? That's what we're supposed to do. And we're not doing that. We're not doing our prime duty. Our prime service. But we're not doing the service because we're so great or we're so smart. Exactly. Doing it because Krishna has asked us to do it. it needs to be. I and mean, maybe we're astonished that he picked somebody as unqualified as ourselves to do it. <laughs> yeah. That just goes to show his incredible mercy that Krishna can empower somebody. Wow, Krishna can empower somebody like me. And he can unempower us, like he did with Arjuna. Arjuna was empowered to fight, and then when it was time to renounce the world, Arjuna couldn't even string his bow anymore. So Krishna can empower me to do his business and when the business is over, he admowers me. It's not mine. My great my, my credit is that I cooperate with Krishna. Prabhupada would say, my only credit is that I follow my spiritual master. That, That is a good pride. I'm a good servant of Krishna. We're having a good and menial survey to rush. And we can improve it. Okay? Okay, thank you very much.